For AZPM, I'm Tony Paniagua, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Mark McLemore is away this week. Coming up, mental illness affects millions of residents in the United States, and in Pima County, library workers are trying to increase communication and understanding about this issue. The library wants to do its part in addressing this crisis meaningfully. We introduce you to the new executive director at the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. She's only been at that job for a few months. I feel very honored and very excited to be in this leadership role. A fashion journalist discusses his new book about plus-sized people, inclusivity, and social media's power to help or hurt different groups. What I would like to see in the future is a digital landscape that is more welcoming of people of different body types, but also safer. And you'll also hear from Marie Buck, who is a big supporter of open spaces. She's the newest leader at the Western National Parks Association. I just love the outdoors and I love that connection that it takes you away from kind of like the realities of your everyday. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Libraries are known as valuable community resources for items such as books or computers. And here in Southeast Arizona, Pima County Public Library also has special teams focusing on other topics, such as ethnic diversity, a seed library, and mental health and wellness. In December, assistant producer Leah Nalani Britton introduced us to the Synapse teams with one of the library's employees. Here's her interview again. The Synapse team is a group of librarians whose mission is to connect our patrons to information about their mental health, to reduce the stigma associated with mental health issues, and to be a bridge to our community partners who can further assist with their expertise. We hope for a community where people feel at ease discussing mental health as an essential part of overall health, and where people are able to reach out for help when they need it. What kind of harm can that kind of stigma cause in a community? Stigma is, a, is an important issue to consider when you're thinking about mental health. Oftentimes people feel um, uh, a sense of disgrace or shame if they have a mental illness. This comes from society, but this also comes from themselves, their self-image of who they are and what having a mental illness means. Mm -hmm. Stigma can impact people's ability to reach out for help. Um, there is a, an alarming statistic where the time between first symptoms and diagnosis of mental illness can be 10 or 11 years, um, and that's a considerable amount of time. And, and part of the reason that people don't get the help that they need in a timely manner is the stigma associated with mental health. How important is a resource like Synapse to the overall mental health of our community? In the past few years, especially through the pandemic, there's been a growing awareness of the sometimes devastating impact of mental health issues in the community. What started us on our journey to this team was the Surgeon General's advisory late last year on the crisis of youth mental health. Even before youth experienced the isolation and social disconnection that the pandemic brought, American youth were in trouble there was a 54% increase in youth suicide for people age 18 to 24 in the decade leading up to 2020. 
Um, suicide is the second leading cause of death for this age group. The library wants to do its part in addressing this crisis meaningfully. Um, the Synapse team is, is involved in curating um, resources and book lists and reaching out to community partners so that we can make people aware of the issue of mental health and its prevalence in our community. What are some other initiatives that you guys have put in place to help that reach that same goal? Um, the Health Action Team is a group of um, 15 interns who are working with writing, art, and the media arts to address the topics of youth mental health, reduce the stigma associated with mental health, and to spread positive messages um, about youth health. We found that the youth are savvy, they're very aware of the situation that they're in, and they're very resilient. Without much prompting, they're able to construct projects and activities that help their own health. Uh, one adventurous teen named Allie on, in our group is starting a podcast devoted to the relationship between BIPOC youth and mental health. And she's um, in the process of recording some of her first episodes as we speak. We have other teens involved in um, uh, zine making for tweens. Uh, zines are, are homemade magazines that were popular in the 80s, and, and they've come back as a, as a low-tech media arts and craft activity where kids can share their ideas, their art, their writing, their comics. How can our listeners get involved in bettering the mental health of our community? Start with your friends, neighbors, and family. You can listen non-judgmentally to someone and be open to the conversations about mental health that come up. Don't be afraid to ask someone about their health if you think they might be struggling. People sometimes feel like they are carrying a secret when they feel distressed or in bad health, and asking them about their feelings gives them an outlet to share something about themselves that is hard to share. Be empathetic and let them know that they are not alone and that help is available. Art is therapeutic, so we put some art activities in the kits, as well as mindfulness, breathing, and meditation guides. For the kits for kids, we included a craft activity to create a worry monster where kids can write down their worries and feed them to the monster. The process of writing down your worries helps put distance between you and what you are worried about, giving you a new perspective. The monster eats your worry rather than you having to continue with that worry. And where can our listeners find more information about Synapse or anything else you talked about today? Anybody listening can go to the Synapse website to get curated book lists, recommendations, connections to our partners. The library website to go to is www.library.pima.gov synapse. That's S-Y-N-A-P-S-E. And if you're interested in the Health Action Team, you can go to www.library.pima.gov slash teenhealth. That's all one word, teenhealth. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Matthew. I love everything that you guys are doing for the community, and it's really great work that I'm sure a lot of people are grateful for. It's been an honor for me to talk to you today, and I feel grateful.
Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona is based in Tucson, Pima County, but hundreds of employees and volunteers also provide much-needed assistance in Cochise, Graham, Greenlee, and Santa Cruz counties. Millions of pounds of food are distributed each year, providing a valuable resource. We spoke to the food bank's newest CEO, Malia Chavez, in December. You moved here from San Francisco, but you had a previous connection to Southern Arizona. Can you tell us about that, please? Absolutely. So my family moved to Tucson in 1985. Uh, my mom is originally from San Francisco, California, and I was born there as well. And she was doing work uh, organizing within the labor movement and came to Arizona to cover the Phelps Dodge strike that was happening in Marinci, Arizona and met my stepdad who is from Clifton, Arizona and was one of the strikers. And they fell in love, they got married and we actually ended up moving to Tucson. And a year later they had my sister, she's born and raised here in Tucson. And I spent most of my childhood here, went to Maxwell for middle school, went to Choya, gay chargers, uh, for high school. And then I moved away in 95 to go to ASU for undergrad. And then I left in 99 to return back to San Francisco to go to law school and really was motivated to move back. My stepdad is still here and my mom had been living with us in San Francisco for many years and was really ready and wanting to move back. So yeah, here I am. And you say you are very excited to take on this new job at the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. Absolutely. I feel very honored and very excited to be in this leadership role. Um, I've been connected with not only food security issues, but the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona specifically most of my life. My mom was a social worker here in Tucson for many years, oftentimes um, worked very closely with them. A lot of her clients and participants were recipients of the food pantry and food boxes. I would go with her on deliveries. And in really tough times, and when my mom became a single parent to two kids, we also benefited from the services of the Community Food Bank. And so this is definitely part of my life's purpose and focus. So this is just a really wonderful opportunity for me to give back to the community and hopefully with some lived experience to be able to bring a little bit of that knowledge and skill to the table. Let's talk about the food need or food insecurity here in Southeast Arizona, the communities that are served by the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. How many people are we talking about? Uh, how many pounds of food? It's about 63 million pounds of food um, in last year. And we did see that stabilize a little bit right at the beginning of this year. Um, but we have since seen an increase of about 20% just in this new fiscal year, um, which is showing us that the demand is getting high again, um, just as it was during COVID with the high cost of food and just supply chain issues and everything else that we've all experienced, it is definitely driving an increase in the need. And the high cost of food at this point also means that we are, our dollar isn't going as far as it used to. And so in order to maintain and be able to continue to provide what now people have really come to rely on, it's costing us more in all resources. And how important are volunteers for the organization? They are critical for us. And we did take a major hit during COVID for very obvious reasons. And it has been kind of a slow recovery to bring enough volunteers in now to meet the growing demand. So 
If people are interested in volunteering, we would love it. You can support us in so many ways, including participating in some of our education programs, um, also shopping at our local farmer's market. It serves our local economy as well by supporting local farmers and, and even our, our city farmers who are growing in small quantities and participating in co-op models. Moving forward for 2023, what are some of your goals, uh, your aspirations for the organization? The main focus right now is to make sure that we are, in fact, getting enough food out to the community. That's a big focus of ours. And then also in our, because our reach is so large and because we cover such a huge region, making sure that there is an equitable allocation and some sort of baseline and expectation across the entire region that people can show up to any of our partner agencies or any of the food banks and know that they're going to be able to get the same thing that they would get when they come to the main office here on Country Club. And this is all a really important and heavy topic, but let's get a little bit light here. Sure. What would you like to do for fun? Why are you happy to be back in Southern Arizona? I love to garden. (laughs) I love being in the desert, going for walks. Um, The night sky will never, ever get old. And just being back in Arizona in general, there's so much to do. I think my friends are always surprised when I send pictures of me in the snow on Mount Lemmon versus, you know, riding around in the desert and taking pictures next to cacti. So there's just such a wide range of outdoor activities that you can do and that I love. And also just because I have a great deal of family here and it really feels like home and there's nothing that can replace that. Okay, Malia Chavez, she is the new CEO for the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. The fashion industry's advertisements and products have traditionally focused on thin and tall men or women, although a significant segment of our population is heavier or shorter than those images. However, as you may have noticed, a shift has been taking place in recent years. Next, Leah Nanali Britton speaks with fashion journalist Gianluca Russo about his book, The Power of Plus, Inside Fashion's Size Inclusivity Revolution. I wanted to make sure that I was representing as many people as possible. I think what often happens in the plus size space and also in inclusivity conversations in general is one or two people are kind of selected as spokespeople for their entire community. And what happens there is there's a level of tokenization and there's also a level of erasing of experiences because no one person can speak for all. So what I wanted to do here was gather a group of 80 to 100 people who could represent their individual communities. Because of course I couldn't incorporate absolutely everyone into this, but I felt by curating a group of people who represented individual communities, individual intersections, different backgrounds, that regardless of who was included, everyone could see themselves represented at one point or another through those voices. Because what I love about the biodiversity space is we all have such different perspectives here. It's a type of marginalization, a type of intersection that can come from any background, any type of person. And so there's so much to talk about 
we're all kind of impacted differently, but we have this common message. And so I wanted to show how we can weave all of our very different experiences together with that message and how that in and of itself can impact so many people and make so many people feel represented. Now, you touch a little bit on social media, and I know social media can be a beautiful yet scary place. What are some ways you'd like to see the size inclusivity movement evolve online? Social media really helped this movement come about. If you look before the days of social media, plus as people existed, these conversations were happening, but they would die out because there was no way to keep that momentum going. Once social media entered the world, there was no denying that this woman was here and she was ready. She grew more and more vocal with the more platforms she was given. And social media was the tool that everyone was able to use to make sure designers knew that they were there and they were ready to shop. And so because of that, many people are grateful for what social media has done for plus-size fashion and for body positivity as a whole. I think we're at a point now where we're seeing the negative effects here and we're seeing how it can actually cause more harm. And something that was once beautiful and helpful is now giving the opposite. What I would like to see in the future is a digital landscape that is more welcoming of people of different body types, but also safer for people of different body types and people of different marginalizations and intersections as well. And I think a lot of that is asking these companies who run these digital sites to put things in practice that will protect them because the digital landscape has grown increasingly less safe for people to speak out and to even just be themselves and to post about what it's like to live their life. And so I'd like to see the tech companies in charge here really put firm measures in place to guarantee or do their best to guarantee that safety because I think everyone is in a weird spot right now where something they used to love now makes them feel bad. What are some ways that our listeners can contribute to making that digital space a bit more friendly for people of all sizes? I think the biggest way that people can do that is by speaking out. I think so often we think our voice no longer matters because there's so many voices online all at once. But really, on an individual level, we each can have an impact because one plus one continues to build until we see that change we need. And so it is just about speaking out. It's about being part of the conversation, contributing, engaging. When you see something, call that out, make a change, report something. There's so many things we can do on an individual level that take only a few seconds of our time that have the biggest impact. Because even if you as one person can take down one bad Instagram you post, uh, Instagram posts you see that is having a negative effect, you're saving so many people from seeing that and then taking that negative message into themselves. And so we really can have an impact. And I think what I wanted to show with this book and with all my work is that so much of this is community-oriented. We each can have a role in that community. And so that's what I want people to really understand here, is that your voice does matter. Even in a world that feels like everyone's screaming, everyone's talking, your voice still matters. There's still a place for it. And you can have such a big impact even by doing small steps forward. What is one thing that you hope readers take away after reading The Power of Plus? I really want readers, of course, to feel inspired. I want them to understand that plus-size fashion is about infinitely more than clothing. This is a transformative aspect of life. 
Because when you have been denied clothing for so long, you never get the opportunity to figure out who you are and how you can use fashion as a form of self-expression. So when that finally happens, when a designer finally makes clothes in their size, when you finally have the option to go into a mall and try things on alongside your friends of different sizes, you are able to step into who you are. Plus size fashion is so transformative on a personal level and so emotional. That's what I want people to understand in this book. It's about so much more than clothing here. So I want people to feel inspired. I want them to feel motivated to continue to push forward because our fight is not done. It's far from over. We've come so far in the past 30 years, and it's so incredible to be able to celebrate that and all the wonderful people who have contributed to it. But our work isn't done. There's so much further to go, and we can do that together as a community. And that's what I want people to feel when they read this book. The Western National Parks Association, or WNPA, focuses on education, interpretation, and other areas as part of a partnership with dozens of national parks. The association began in 1938 and has been based in Tucson since 1984. Marie Buck became the group's newest CEO last summer, and she spoke to us after starting her new job. I was reading about you, and you worked for the Grand Canyon Conservancy and the Phoenix Raceway, also known as NASCAR. What led you to apply for this position at the Western National Parks Association? Well, this position just seemed like a natural extension of the work that I had already done with Grand Canyon Conservancy. I love the outdoors. I love the experience that the outdoor provides to you know all of our visitors across the United States. And the opportunity to impact over 70 partner parks, monuments, and historic sites was just too wonderful of an opportunity to pass up. Western National Parks Association is a really highly respected organization nationally doing so much to support our parks. And I just wanted to join the team and get on board. And what are some of the major projects or programs that the Western National Parks Association has? So we really look at our projects kind of in four buckets. So the first is retail with a purpose. So when you visit a national park or monument or historical site and you see the little retail store that's part of the visitor center or close by, all of those products are created with an interpretive and educational scope in mind. So the idea is that you take your park experience home with you. If you buy a book, you know, or you buy some type of memento that, you know, really represents your visit, you'll always remember your park visit and hopefully create, you know, a lifelong supporter. We also support NPS educational services, so providing educational programs to our visitors, whether on-site or digitally, which a lot of that happened in 2020, you know, with the COVID pandemic, we certainly had to pivot and adapt. Um, research, we provide funding for the park services research projects, and then publishing. So we publish books uh, that we sell, you know, in our stores and other locations. So four really big buckets. And why have a WNPA doing this? Why not the National Park Service itself? The National Park Service doesn't really have the mechanism to do this themselves. So cooperating associations exist to kind of fill that gap for the Park Service. And one of the great things that we were able to do and other cooperating associations during COVID was one, the Park Service was 
technically kind of shut down in terms of their visitor interpretive services. Our retail stores were open and our staff were answering questions, helping direct the visitors, you know, to the right experience or the right place to go, you know, along with providing them with those products. So you are providing economic uh, support as well to the National Park Service? We are. Since we were founded in 1938, we've provided over $120 million in aid to our partner parks. And even in 2020, that number was $6.7 million. So it's a significant impact and support to the park system. Do you think there was a misconception out there by the public that because it's a national organization, the National Park Service, not WNPA, that they're getting all the funding that they need from Congress and the uh, administrations, whoever happens to be in the White House? Absolutely. I think there's a, a misperception, you know, that the parks are adequately funded. Um, you know, they struggle for funding just like any other federal agency, and they have to prioritize, you know, where they can spend their dollars. So I think absolutely you're spot on. Why are you a big fan of the outdoors and the National Park Service? Well, I mean, since I was a kid, right, my mom and dad, we'd go to national parks, we'd camp, we'd fish, we'd hike, we'd backpack. I just love the outdoors, and I love that connection that it takes you away from kind of like the realities of your everyday, whether it's school or work, you know, you're just getting back to the basics and connecting with the landscape that has been around for millions and millions of years. Um, It's just a spiritual and very emotional connection for me. Moving forward, Marie Buck, what are your goals? What's your biggest mission in so far as your organization and the national parks? We really want to continue to grow and be a strong, relevant partner to the Park Service on a national footprint. You know, we want to help the Park Service impact those visitors, tell those untold stories of America's history, and really reach out to audiences that have been underserved in the past. So how do we stay strong as an organization? You know, how do we grow uh, so we can have that capacity to to serve those needs as, as the community changes? And what about our listeners? If somebody is listening, what would you say to him or her? How can you get involved and help not only the National Park Service, but Western National Parks Association? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question. Thank you. So first of all, you can visit our website at WNPA.org. There are so many ways to get involved. Visit one of our 71 partner parks monuments and historic sites. Check out our retail stores. Check out the interpretive services that are there. Uh, You can go online. You can become a park protector. Uh, It's a very small investment. Then you get our digital newsletters. You get discounts. You get access to special projects. And all of your funds are supporting what we do out there in the field. Uh, You can volunteer for us. You can volunteer for the parks. There's just a multitude of ways for folks to get involved. And I would really say the first step, again, check us out online, see what interests you, you know, and then reach out. We'd love to help anyone get involved with us. Marie Buck, the new CEO of the Western National Parks Association with its headquarters right here in Tucson, Arizona. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope to see you at one of our parks. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. Assistant producer is Leah Nalani Britton. 
The production engineer this week is Zach Ziegler, and I'm producer and host this week, Tony Paniagua. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.